welcome to West Virginia University's Women in Science and Medicine podcast brought to you by the Health Sciences Center's Office of Research and Graduate Education. We will be talking to women with careers in these fields, gaining their insight into what it's like operating in roles that are still mostly dominated by men. I'm your host, Mallory Weaver, and today my guest is Dr. Nikkei Blake. Dr. Blake was recently welcomed to the University of California, San Francisco as their Vice Provost of Student Academic Affairs and Dean of their Graduate Division. Welcome, Dr. Blake. Congratulations on your new role, and thank you so much for joining me on the show today. Thank you, Mallory. Appreciate that. So I always start off um, asking about my guests' prior experience and their journey, their career journey. I know your previous role was Senior Associate Dean for Admissions and Student Affairs at the Graduate School for Biomedical Sciences at the University of Texas Health San Antonio, also a mouthful. So for listeners unfamiliar with your career, can you summarize your professional journey for us? Sure. I am a native Texan, so I started uh, my career at the University of Texas at San Antonio, which is different from the University of Texas Health San Antonio, two sister institutions, but two different places. So this was the undergraduate campus, majored in biology, went on to do my master's, stayed there to do my master's in neuroscience, and then left um, San Antonio for St. Louis, where I did my PhD in neuroscience in a neurosurgery lab. And then after I was finished with my PhD, I elected to stay at WashU, but I switched fields there. And we can talk about why I would do a crazy thing like that later. But I switched fields and I did my postdoc in a biochemistry lab, which was housed in the Department of Pathology. And then I left WashU. We can talk about career transitions. I left WashU and came to the Health Science Center in 2007 and was there for 14 years until I just left for UCSF. Of course, at the Health Science Center, I went through a number of title changes sure. on the way to the senior associate dean. And what uh, first inspired you as a young girl or young woman to pursue science? You know, that was an interesting question. I, I think it really is. So pursuing science versus pursuing research, right? Two slightly different questions. So I'm going to try to merge those into, into one. So I really just pursued science because it's the thing that interested me most. It was the least boring thing in school, right? <laughs> because in, in science, you were always using your hands. You were always doing experiments uh, as opposed to, no offense to my historians in the group, like history or English, sure. right? Where you just, right? So it said, uh, in part, it was me just, it was the most curious thing that, that I could do. Yeah, it's always asking questions. Absolutely. Yeah. So for, but, but as I started college, I, I really had my intent when I started college was to be a high school teacher, right? I, I've always loved to teach. I was teaching in various aspects of my life, even at that point. And I wanted to make that formal. And, and they told me that if I were to, so I knew I loved biology and I knew I loved to teach. So I wanted to combine mm -hmm. those two. And for me to combine those two, it means I, it meant I would have to give up one. 
Mm. It was kind of crazy to me. Yeah. So I, so I sort of said, you know what? All right, I'm just going to go do the biology degree. So I started on the journey of the biology degree. And as a sophomore, a buddy of mine came up to me after a genetics class, an eight o'clock genetics class. So you know how lucid we were at eight o'clock as a sophomore. <laughs> and, and she came up to me and she said, hey, do you want to make money? Who doesn't? <laughs> And I'm like, do you know a self-respecting college student that does not want to make money? <laughs> right. And, and this is literally how I started, what started my interest in research. The opportunity she was talking about was working in a lab in a program at the time, I think it was called the MBRS. Don't remember what that means, but it's currently the URISE program now, I think. So, so I started there and, you know, I went to interview for the position and they asked me, what do you want to work on? I'm I'm a sophomore. I don't know anything, right? I didn't even know research was a career. So, So I looked at the list and literally this is how I made my decision. I looked at the list and I said, what is the thing on this list that I am most afraid of? Mm. And I looked at neuroscience and I thought about the Nernst equation and I'm like, yep, that's it. Let's do that. And that's literally how I started the journey into neuroscience. I started a lab. I love that. I love that. I love that approach. What What am I most scared of instead of being risk adverse? That is, that's fascinating. I love that. And I think that's a good lesson and a good approach for some people, because I think some people, I think some people more than others tend to remain as safe as possible. And sometimes that's not the best road or even the most interesting road. Absolutely. Yeah. I know advocating diversity in academia has been a major focus of your career. A state like West Virginia generally lacks diverse populations compared to other states. And this challenges institutions like ours to really be creative in terms um, of recruiting diverse students. Do you have any insight into how universities facing that challenge should proceed or strategies to implement? Sure. So, so this is a this is a really it doesn't sound like a hard question, but it really is a hard question. And and let me tell you why. If you if you try to do diversity as an academic exercise, mm. you will fail. Mm. So so in order to do diversity well, you need people who genuinely care about diversity. Sure. Right. Now, there are a lot of people who say they care about <laughs> diversity. Valid. You, really, yeah. you really need people who genuinely care. And here's the thing. Diverse populations have spent so much of their lives being lied to, being disrespected, being cared about, being not cared about, that they can, they can see you coming if you want. <laughs> Yeah, they, 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 are, they have such heightened sensibilities that they can see you coming. So the first thing that you have to do that university and system have to do, you got to find people who are who care. The second thing I think that that is important that you can't dismiss is you, you really have to identify small goals. Mm. Well-intentioned people try to articulate these massive goals about diversity and, and you will fail. And let me tell you why. Because defining diversity 
must happen at the local level. Mm. So what's diverse for you and, and works for you in West Virginia? Right. May not work for me in California. So if I try to lift something out of West Virginia and bring it into California, I'm probably going to fail. Mm. So basically, what we should be doing is understanding our own micro environments and then figuring out within that micro environment how to adapt the, the principles that we know work, right? So I, I like to tell people that throughout my career at the Health Science Center, basically, I just ran, I, I just ran a bunch of experiments. Mm -hmm. Right. So, so I, I, I took ideas. I, I put it into place in a small group within my um, environment. I, tr I worked on making sure that all the pieces worked for my, my audience. And then once we had that proof of concept worked out, then I pushed it out to the rest of the institution. Right. So so if 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 you try to come in and with one swath, just, you know, you're going to do all these things, you are more likely to fail because you you really have to, I like to say, prepare for rain. Mm. Right. So if you think about a farmer, a farmer goes out and he, he just doesn't he just doesn't he doesn't never knows when rain is going to come. Right. So, but he has to, still has to prepare the ground. Mm -hmm. And that is really the approach that you have to use with diversity. You have to go out there. You have to plow. You have to plant. You have to you have to prune. You have to do all of those things. Right. With the expectation that once you provide the environment, then now you can start bringing people in that environment, but you got to prepare the environment for that change. Sure. I think what you're describing there, the best way to really sum that up is doing the work. And the other piece of that, at least in my experience, is closing your mouth and opening <laughs> your ears and asking Absolutely. the underrepresented groups what they need, Absolutely. right? Instead of... Um, just kind of putting, and then you're wasting time, right? If you don't do that work and you, and you really do have the genuine goal of diversity in mind, that can be a lot of wasted time and effort when really, you know, it really starts with asking that other person and putting yourself in their headspace. You know, you, you mentioned time. I want to just add that you, you have to give it time to grow. Mm. Right. Yeah. That's a good point. Diversity is truly like a, is, is it's a plant. And it doesn't spring up. It's actually, it's a tree. Think about an oak tree. It's like a tree, right? Yeah. <laughs> that, that oak tree doesn't develop in two years, five years. It's sure. It's, it will take time. So sure. diversity is also, I, I like to think about it as a lifestyle, which mm. means it's adaptable and it's growing. Absolutely. Very recently, our office has shifted to a more holistic admissions process, specifically for our biomedical sciences PhD programs. For listeners unfamiliar with this concept, it actually entails including qualitative indicators such as letters of recommendation and research experience with the more quantitative traditional data like test scores to accurately represent applicants' uh, benefits to a potential program. Do you have uh, any personal familiarity with holistic-based approaches? And do you see benefits to this process and more specifically benefits to students in underrepresented groups? There, there's a tendency to not recognize that many of the structures within the academy 
really mitigate mm. against diverse people joining the academy. There's a tendency to gloss over the fact that our admissions processes are the gatekeepers to the academy. And if you use processes that were developed when we were a more a less diverse population, then what do you expect to happen mm. when your population diversifies? Yeah. And I, I'll, I'll couch my answer in, in a story. So I've spent the last, I, I was doing holistic admissions long before holistic admissions was a thing. Right? For the buzzword. <laughs> so, so, so let me tell you a story about a, a young man. So I lived in San Antonio. And I would recruit all along um, the San Antonio, Mexico border. I went to a school, um, just because I don't want to reveal who it is, I'll tell you it's a school near the border. And I met this young man. He had a 2.8 undergraduate degree, but then he went and he did a master's and he had a 3.4 or 5 GPA at the master's level. As an undergrad, when I looked at his transcript, I was like, dude, what have you been doing? <laughs> right? And, and basically, he spent the, last, the first two years, as many undergraduates did do, being, being stupid. Right. Mm. He thought he was, uh, he was in there. for the first time and he was partying for his first two years. His last two years, you could see the trend up. Right. And then he recognized that if he wanted to realize his dream, he would do it. When I, when I met, when I, when I finally met him, the first year of his master's program, he said, I said, what are you going to do with your, his, his PI just said to me, you should talk to that dude, right? He's very talented and he's wasting his life, right? Hmm. So I, I talked to him and he, he wanted to be a border patrol man. Oh, wow. That was his dream. That was it. Because that's all he could see, right? Right. I fought for this guy to come into our program at a time when GREs were the measure of success and at a time when undergraduates education was the measure of success, right? And on both levels, this guy was failing. Right. And I argued that here's a young man who was working 40 hours a week and doing his master's degree Yes, he faltered as an undergrad, but grace and mercy. Anybody ever heard of those two words? That's exercise of grace and mercy. Right. And I finally convinced my dean and the admissions committee to admit him. This young man came into our program in the first year, and he was the leader of my first year class. Oh, wow. That's wonderful. He finished his degree in just over five years. And he is now teaching at one of our local undergraduate education. He has won every single teaching award that you can think about. Isn't it so fascinating when you put powerful things behind people, they do powerful things. Like when you put support behind someone and give them an opportunity. That is what holistic admissions does. It takes people. I always like to say, I look for oysters. Mm. And I bring them into an environment that allows them to develop. 
their product. I love that. I actually read recently too that some particularly higher level institutions are seeing increasing numbers of underrepresented groups in admissions because the pandemic has forced their hand in offering that grace and eliminating things like SAT scores and ACT scores from consideration. And and so that those populations are thriving. So Mm -hmm. it's, it's data-based. It it is, but you know, it's, it's more than just database. It's really, it's really an understanding of our admissions committees Mm. that looking at singular data points is, is not, you have to look at context. A person, right? Too. Yeah. So if I have two students with 4.0 GPAs, one is working 40 hours a week and one is doing nothing but studying all day long. Chances are I want the guy that's working 40 hours or gal that's working 40 hours a week, right? Because that tells me, A, this person can multitask, B, that this person understands the value of what they're doing, not that the other person doesn't. Sure. But see, this person is going to come in here and they are going to work their tails off. Yeah, it shows a level of resilience that's off the chart. Yeah. Right. So there you go. Yeah. Speaking of the pandemic, it's when we we spoke a little bit before we began recording, but it's challenged all of us on so many levels and it's had a unique impact on women. Do you know personally of any colleagues or specifically women of color that have suffered setbacks in their careers due to COVID-19? Oh, you want you want me to show you the the line? Uh, Uh, Oh, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I have friends who just think about women with single women mm. with young kids and think about what that will do. Right. I don't even have to, I don't need to share in individual experience. Sure. Yeah. Think about, think about women who, even if they're in relationships and have dedicated partners, the preponderance of the child responsibilities fall on them. Sure. And think about them. Many labs shut down during the pandemic. Think about them having to deal with those childhood problems. Think about as a parent, I have grown kids, so it wasn't really an issue for me, but think about a parent who has children under five years old oh my. cannot be vaccinated. I think about it all the time. Yeah. Or, you know, early in the pandemic, it was 12. Right. That, right. Or 16 and under that couldn't be. And just, just think about how that resonates in just the normal community. Mm-hmm. And, and now put that into a scientific environment where Um, Many of our male colleagues are not, do not have that level of responsibility, which means that they are humming along (laughs) with very little impact when the the female is measured by the same metrics. Yeah. Irrelevant of the other side of her life. So, yes, I, it's, it's been, and, and yet. I was going to say it's been a tragedy, but and yet is really what, where I should go. Many of them have like troopers just come through with like gold, right? Yeah. Um, but but they, they, 
there are clear disadvantages that they have suffered as a result of the pandemic. Sure. You mentioned children in the home and still thinking around the pandemic. A specific worry here in West Virginia when we shut down schools and went to remote learning is we have a large rural population in this state that does not have reliable broadband Mm -hmm. um, to support remote learning. So then I just myself got to wondering if this will negatively impact college admissions years from now in the sense that the pandemic pause will have hampered some of the progress for all underrepresented students in similar situations and prevent them then from successfully applying to college either at all or on time. Is Do you share this concern? And do you think there's anything we can do to avoid that, if so? That, that concern is prevalent. And if we're going to avoid it, we got to stop talking about it. Mm. So I've seen some creative ideas, some creative implementation of things, like there's a school district, I believe in Pennsylvania, that has a internet bus. Oh, wow. Bus goes into the neighborhood. The kids can either sit in the bus or they can sit around the bus. There's enough bandwidth so that they can get their work done. Right. I've, I've seen where they, a lot of schools now are sending hotspots home with students. Right. But, but, we, again, we have to understand that technology is part of the answer mm. to equalizing, to, ha- to, to having equity in the academy. Mm. Yeah. Right? And, and if we don't understand that, and if we don't move now, to change that. So that, that's a bigger issue than a school or a school. This, this, is, this is really a quasi-political issue now, right? Yeah. Because Resources to they, all. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> it's, if we can't provide, you know, right now, broadband is like water, right? You, you are not going to survive the educational system if you do not have broadband, Right. And and then you have to recognize that maybe for a lot of these students who missed out on a year or were approaching two years now of this. Maybe some of the solutions is summer school. Mm -hmm. Uh, Do we have the resources for summer school? Maybe some of the solution is for us in higher education to look at outreach programming mm. to help these students. But I mean, there are, there are all kinds of creative ways that we can change this, but we have to have the collective will to carry that out. If you don't, you're right. Five years from now, 10 years from now, we're going to see it because a four-year-old right now, a four-year-old in 2019, right? who missed out on whatever pre-K um, learning that they could have done, that will slow them down. doesn't matter. That will slow them down, right? Sure. So now it, don't, it becomes a, it's not even just diverse now, it's a socioeconomic thing, right? Mm-hmm. And it's a geographic thing. Yeah. 
right? So, so now it's not it's not just the black and brown folks. It's everybody. As long as you don't meet some some quasi socioeconomic threshold where you can afford to have that. So, so we have to think. The academy has to think creatively about how we're going to address that right now. Yeah. I thought it was interesting to your comparison to water because people a lot now Flint, Flint, Michigan folks understand it. But I, I would argue there's a large, large percentage of folks in this country that don't understand how many folks in the world walk several miles a day just to have accessible water. So it's, you know, that resource too, it's the same, same kind of thing. So it was a really apt comparison, I think. Yeah, absolutely. Switching gears a little bit here. I found it interesting. The story you told uh, about the student who, you know, went to, went to school and kind of loafed around initially. And that's exactly what happened to me. (laughs) I started at Penn State Beaver Campus. I transferred to Penn State, Maine. And as soon as I was away from my parents, I went rogue. Let's put it that way. So I finally earned my undergraduate degree and subsequent master's degree. I was well into my 30s. In fact, I was 40 when I graduated with my master's degree. Good for you. Good for you. Thank you. you. But it's it's made me a passionate advocate of seeking knowledge and higher education. I know I know you are, too. Do you happen to have any unique advice for adult learners returning to university? And I ask that because I know for myself, if I hadn't had a very close friend um, at the time that was returning to Penn State, you know, she really walked me through the admissions process and the hoops and just kind of made it so much less scary. And then you you also in that process, you have like so many different offices within a university that either are communicating well or not communicating so well. We know what that's like working in higher education. So I just wanted to know if you had any take on that specifically. Interesting you should ask that question because I literally just went through this. Oh, so so I had a I had a neighbor who wanted to get back. She had had her child. She homeschooled for not homeschooled. She stayed at home while her child was in elementary child had moved into middle school, middle school. Yep, middle school. And now she wants to get back. And she was terrified. Yeah. And she tried to do all the right things and it just was not happening. Literally a chance encounter with my husband and they were chatting and she mentioned and she goes, you know, that's the kind of thing my wife does. You should probably talk to her. Right. And that is how we we actually started talking about it. And you are right. I and I and I told her this to you. I said, you do your part first and you do all the legwork. And then once you begin to face hurdles, I always tell them, go find your dean's office. Mm. Literally, because most dean's offices want you to succeed. They're going to find you the help. Oh, right? yeah. So, so I said, go find the dean, the department chair, whoever. Right. We walked. I walked her through the steps she should take. Mm-hmm. And and I and 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 even just a few weeks ago, you know, she we talked through her 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 academic courses for the semester. And, you know, I said, well, you probably don't want to do these three things together. So she needed she needed really an ally yeah. to help her walk through that. So I, I, I would argue that you need three things. You need you need an ally. You need 
to 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 seek out the right resources. Mm. Uh, I'm not I'm not sure why this is a thing, but it it seems as if offices that should be able that should that interface with the general school population, th- they make it really hard to try to find. <laughs> Right. Yeah. Um, and and I, and I I say I usually say to my adult learners, your persistence will pay off. Right. You just have to be persistent. You will find. You just keep digging. You will find someone within the system who will say, you know what, I'm going to walk you through this. But it may not be the first twenty people you encounter. Right. That's where that resilience kicks in, buddy. Absolutely. (laughs) Absolutely. So you have to be persistent. Yeah. And and then I say, you know, rather than getting stressed out about it, think about it as a game. Mm. How can I find the right resources to get me to where I want? Right. Mm. So, So think about it as a game. You engage with the game. It will be a lot more fun. It will feel a lot less stressful and you will get to where you want but you do need an ally and you do need to be persistent in seeking the resources. Sure. And that, that ties into my next question. Well, because I was going to argue, you know, any, any successful student, I think really needs strong support from the very beginning. Mm -hmm. There's a persistent myth that girls aren't interested or good at science and an even more nagging myth that bias isn't still perpetuated in the classroom at very young Mm -hmm. ages. I'll tell you women on this show, specifically have mentioned the general aura in grade school that just had them feeling like STEM fields weren't for girls, yet they persisted. The National Science Foundation states that, quote, in fact, biases are persistent and teachers often interact with boys more than girls in science and math. A teacher will often help a boy do an experiment by explaining how to do it. While when a girl asks for assistance, the teacher will often simply do the experiment, leaving the girl to watch rather than do, end quote. Mm -hmm. I know your expertise is at the graduate level rather than K through 12, but have you ever felt as if you've seen bias at the earlier stages of a female student's development? All the time. Yeah. All the time. It's, it is unfortunate. And, and I, you know, I, I I spent much of my career. I can't tell you how many times I have been on the recruitment trail and I am talking to students many times. They're women and they tell me what they're being told at their institutions. Mm. And I literally have to say, stop. I do not want you to talk to them anymore. Mm. Here is my business card. Let's set up regular meetings so that we can walk you through because what you are hearing is not right. And damaging long term. Well, I I was about to say I don't mean that it's not it's it's just not not the right information. Right. What I really mean it is it is an injustice. Sure. Right. So it's it's when I say not right, it's I mean it in 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 both those. So it's it's unfortunate that that it happens, and. Again, you know, you will hear me talk about allyship all the time because I think that is so important. And it's something that women just don't do enough of. Hmm. Right. You know, they 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 say if if a job is advertised and a woman looks at it and she meets 70 percent or 80 percent of the of the job description, 
the woman will say, I'm not, I'm not qualified. Mm. A man, 50%, and he says, I can do that job. Yeah. Right. So, so very often, too often, maybe we are just not our own best self-advocates. Mm. And sometimes it requires us to have networks and allies that will help to to drive to making decisions, right? So, so look at me. I am the dean of a grad school. I'm a vice provost, and I have a mentoring network. Yeah, right? I have women that I meet with on a fairly regular basis that will that will talk some sense into me. Yep, <laughs> absolutely. Yeah. Right, and and they challenge me. Right. When I when I was when I was when I started thinking about this job, they're the ones that said, "Okay, go for it. Right. Because I was thinking of every reason why I should not. Right. So so just because you see women in these positions, it doesn't mean that we, too, don't have those moments of doubt. Chances are we just have better networks around us. We have yeah. allies who will, who will, our sponsors, that's, that's the newest term. We have sponsors who will actually take, help us to take that step. It's so important to develop our networks and to develop our allies early in our careers. Yeah. And so many of those relationships, as I've seen a lot on this show in particular, a few women have cited that those relationships have continued 20, 25 years into their careers and are still helpful to this day. And so that is that is so important. And it's, you know, it's just like quality friends, you know, quality is important, not necessarily quantity, but I think working on that early in one's career is, I think that's a really good point. That's really, it's, it's, I'm telling you this network of women that I, that I, there. So so we used to be sort of diverse all across the country. And now we were all in Texas for a little while. And as I was moving, they got together and drove three, four hours down to my house just to say goodbye. I love it. Right. So, yeah. I mean, what what more can you ask for? That's right. that is friendship, right? It is. It is mentorship, but it is friendship. It is. I agree with you. Well, we are wrapping up, Dr. Blake. Uh, lastly, I ask all of my guests to wrap up with this single question. What is the single most important thing you think girls and women should keep in mind as they pursue roles in science and medicine? Do not. Well, let me just put it in the positive. There's nothing that you cannot do. Yep. And don't let anybody tell you anything differently. I love it. But I would say. I love it. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Blake. Again, congratulations on your new role. And thank you so much for being a guest today on the Women in Science and Medicine podcast. All right. Thank you so much, Mallory. I appreciate your time. Thank you. Thank you.